Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by John Lukomnik, who is the author of Moving Beyond uh, Modern Portfolio Theory, and he wrote that alongside Professor James Hawley. John, welcome. Thanks so much, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's go into the book um, and really maybe what was the trajectory that took you uh, to this place of, of writing this particular book? Actually, the origins go back about a quarter of a century. I was running the New York City pension funds, the investment side of it. And as you might imagine, that's a bit of a frenetic situation. You're dealing with trustees, you're dealing with staff, you're dealing with internal managers and external managers, you're negotiating ISDAs and custodial agreements and looking at what the markets are doing. And one afternoon, I had um, some spare time, which is something that didn't happen very often. And I looked out at the trading desk and realized that all this freneticism was somewhat beside the point that what I really needed was some place to put what was at that time $80 billion to earn a rate of return above inflation forever. Now, in some ways, that was a very simple formulation. And so it was reassuring that I understood what the task was with great clarity. But that epiphany was also disturbing because, in fact, modern portfolio theory doesn't provide any way to provide some place to put $80 billion turn a rate of return above inflation forever, because that's dependent upon having healthy capital markets. So it, it led me down the path of starting to think about total return rather than relative return and healthy capital markets rather than extracting alpha from existing capital markets. Mm-hmm. And so what would you then define as being the, you know, the key aspects of the problems of modern portfolio theory that you think is, is really driving some of the, the concerns that you have in the market? Oh, I think there are many. I mean, after all, we just wrote a whole book about it. But if I had to give you the overarching issue, it's that modern portfolio theory, first, it's not that modern anymore. It's you know, 75, whatever, 1952. Second, the real problem is that it is divorced from the real world. It's divorced from the economic, financial, environmental, and social systems in which value is created. Capital markets are pricing mechanisms. They're not necessarily value creation mechanisms. And MPT is a wonderful tool for extracting the mean variance portfolio or the most efficient risk return portfolio from the extant markets. It's not a great tool to say, how is value created? Are the markets healthy? How do we improve the markets overall? Now, the problem with that is that depending on which academic study you look at, systematic risk, non-diversifiable risk accounts for 75 to 94% of your return. What MPT does though, is it focuses on diversification, provides the math, on how to optimize your diversification. But that only works on idiosyncratic risk. And so in effect, what MPT does is, let's says, let's focus on the math. 
Let's take the market as a given, and then let's maximize what we can of this 6 to 25% of return. It focuses you on what matters least, which is a bit bizarre when you really think about it. It's really an interesting conversation because one of the challenges that people have when they're running their portfolios is an ability to look at a potential benchmark or use some sort of an approach to allocate capital. And it's always difficult when you don't have any benchmark. People need to be measured in some way. And so MPT has been a way to allocate capital efficiently and hopefully beat a market in quotations. There are a lot of implications in that statement. You are correct. And yet, if you think about people normally talk about alpha, right? Return, risk adjusted return due to skill. I mean, there's a formula, but risk adjusted return due to skill is the easiest way to put it. Number one, I will tell you, having allocated more than $100 billion in my life, inevitably, when a manager outperforms, it's alpha. And when he underperforms or she underperforms, it's just you know risk being manifest. Uh, <laughs> so somehow the skill is always on the upside. Having said that, though, the mathematical formula for alpha actually is sort of a residual. It's that which is not explained away by betas. And we have an entire section in the book that looks at the fact that the better computing power, the better you're able to match a benchmark, the less alpha there actually is available. It's a residual. So you could replicate now Warren Buffett's portfolio using a bunch of factor portfolios if you believe there is alpha in a low carbon portfolio, well, you shouldn't be comparing yourself to an ASX index. You should be comparing, or, or an S&P, you should be comparing yourself to a low carbon one. And so the more you refine your benchmark, the more you are basically saying that the beta of the market, the system systematic return of the market is going to define your portfolio. And it's going to define your risk. And so there's a bit of a catch-22 here, which is, yes, people want a benchmark to judge how well they're doing, but who are you judging? You're judging the asset manager on their ability to extract from the marketplace. It's not for the individual investor or the asset owner. Let me give you a simple example. If the market's down 10 and your asset manager is only down 8, he or she has outperformed by 200 basis points. They're a hero, right? I mean, you do that for enough years, you attract lots of money. But you still only have 92 cents on the dollar to retire on or buy a house or travel or whatever. In fact, running a pension fund made me very aware of my liability stream. I had to pay future pensions. I'd rather underperform an up market. I'd rather only get 8% in a market that's up 10 than lose 8% in a market that's down 10, because at least I have a dollar eight to offset those future liabilities. And so the question is, relative return benchmarks are self-referential to the marketplace. They see how well an asset manager has done constructing a portfolio, extracting value from the marketplace, but it's totally unrelated to the purpose of investing, which is to deal with real life situations to intermediate capital, to save for future events. And so you have this misalignment between the relative return, judge the skill set of the manager, and was the skill set applied to something which actually is fulfilling the purpose of investing. 
I've got to ask you the question because when I listen to your your comments there, it really says that it's almost as though MPT is like the tail wagging the dog here and that the MPT style of approach that people look at markets is actually changing the structure of markets. The MPT structure has definitely changed the structure of markets. We'll get to the tail wagging the dog in a second. But look, I mean, MPT was a revolution. It is a great tool for extracting the best portfolio can. And the desire for prepackaged diversification gave rise to mutual funds and usits and managed accounts and commingled funds. Um, and you now definitely have institutionalization of assets in the US when Markowitz was writing. The equity markets were 8% institutional, about 92% retail. They're almost exactly the reverse of that. And that trend has played out in every market in the world. And it's largely because of MPT. MPT laid the groundwork for indexation. You have index effects. That changes the market. You have risk on, risk off markets. That changes the markets. None of that happened when you had individual retail investors investing not at size and somewhat randomly. They were all price takers. Now, whether it's BlackRock or State Street or whomever, institutions are often price makers as well as price takers. To get to your tail wagging the dog, I would prefer to use a different analogy. It's a little bit like Maswell's hammer. If all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. All we had was MPT. It was a great tool, but we tried to apply it beyond diversifying idiosyncratic risk to things that didn't work. So for instance, the global financial crisis, everyone thought they were protected because they were diversified. They didn't think about going into the real world and saying, what's the underwriting standards? And because we kept on buying all this stuff, because it was in theory diversified, the underwriting standards kept slipping and slipping and pretty soon we were in a global financial crisis. I'm curious, you mentioned uh, Warren Buffett a little bit earlier. If I think back, say, 30, 40 years, and, and Buffett's still got a very concentrated portfolio, not a large number of stocks, he would say that he's very invested in all those stocks individually, understands the businesses very well. And if you go back, say, 40, 50 years more generally, most people didn't hold an index, right? Indexes and that style of market wasn't available, those types of products. People were very much invested, bottom-up, fundamental analysis. It's what they taught you as part of the CFA curriculum that, I, that I've done as well, right? And so to that end, people really had to think about ESG factors, maybe not directly, but it always part of understanding the stakeholders, understanding this business, regulation risk, understanding if there's any climate risk. You used to think about that. And as we transition to this very sophisticated, professionalized way of finance, MPT has now become dominant. And we've actually moved away from what we actually learned many, many years ago, which was this bottom-up approach that, that Buffett and Graham and Dodd put forward in terms of security analysis and valuation. I'm going to have you co-write the next book with me because you've nailed it. Here's what's happened. When you care about an individual company, you care about what in the real world affects that company. Remember, I said value or risk or destruction of value is created in the real world. Capital markets are for pricing. And yet, what are the only three capital market assumptions one needs for modern portfolio theory? Now, they're supposedly all in excess return space, but you need expected return, correlation, and expected risk. But it's not... I think there's going to be a hurricane. I have to worry about weather pattern. Or, gee, I run a retail f- service. I have to worry about turnover of my employees. That's not the risk. It's, it's volatility. 
variability of returns. And so, in effect, that was the first major assumption of MPT that started sealing off the real world. Once you only care about volatility as opposed to the cause of risk or the number on return, as opposed to how is that return generated, then you have you need to have other assumptions like efficient market hypothesis, rational investors, random walk theory to firmly seal off MPT from the real world so that the math can work. Because if you allow the real world, which we say you should, to intervene, then you have a bunch of feedback loops and the math gets impossible. And so the simplifying assumptions make the math work, but also make it limited to that idiosyncratic risk, which is a very small portion of your total return. And you're absolutely right. If you owned a candy store, you would care about what the front looked like and how you treated your customers and what the government regulation was and what you were selling, where do you do any of that when you do financial analysis, right? You do in the fundamental up, but you don't when you just look at MPT assumptions. It's, it's really amazing because it's, it's an issue where you can invest in a portfolio of 500 stocks and claim that I'm going to do the right thing by 500 stocks, but then you've got to go back to one of the things you described in the book, which is beta activism, right? And you've got to actually try and change the market, which is very difficult. It's actually very hard. So, you know, should we be you know, maybe adding a penalty to large institutional investors as they start to invest in more and more companies? Uh, they're actually delegating their duties to other people and to the market at, at a, as a whole, rather than actually internalizing some of these issues. I don't know that I would suggest a penalty. In fact, it is the large universal owners who are leading the way. I should say who are partially leading the way in terms of dealing with systematic issues like climate change or gender inequality um, and representation in the boardroom. Um, and I should also mention at the industry level, we tend to think of individual stocks or globally, but industry level, for instance, is a very successful initiative on mining safety for extractive industries or dealing with antimicrobial resistance. We're coming hopefully coming out of a pandemic, everyone's wondering what the next health crisis is. A number of investors have looked at antimicrobial resistance, and they're trying to deal with that everywhere from the groundwater runoff at manufacturing plants in India to overuse of antibiotics in animal husbandry. So I, I think that the large universal owners have got it. They, they understand that they are too big to only have idiosyncratic risk. Right. And so, you know, whatever one may think of BlackRock, it does have the largest stewardship team in the world and it's fairly influential. We can go into what people think about BlackRock later if you want. And there obviously are others, socially responsible investors have been doing this for years. Religious investors have been doing it for years for ethical reasons, but for purely risk reasons, I do think it's actually the large universal owners who have started to wake up. Now, one can argue they're too slow. They've only woken up in the last two years. They're not going fast enough. But the directionality, I think, is is certain. And what's interesting about our book is it was relatively easy to write because, in fact, practice has led theory. We've been able to look at what investors are doing around climate change and say, why? 
We've been able to look at what investors are doing around gender diversity and say why and understand that these are attempts to mitigate systemic risk in the real world before it can metastasize into non-diversifiable systematic risk in the capital markets. I'm curious around your thoughts around the actual responsibility for some of these risks, because I've spoken to some people that have said the government should really help with the regulation here. Uh, and it's actually putting a lot of pressure on an asset owner or asset allocator uh, to to do some of these jobs, which they feel maybe the government should be giving more clarity around the the barriers uh, around how to improve some of these decisions. You know, what are your thoughts there around the role of the government? And is the government maybe sort of pushing some of these responsibilities too much on asset allocators? Government clearly should be first and foremost in a number of these areas. But, you know, investors have been dealing with country risk forever. Investors have been dealing with certain risks forever. And it's the job of the investor to figure out what it can do to mitigate risk or diversify risk. Since you can't diversify these risks, many of us are trying to mitigate them. One can say, well, it should be government's role, but I don't think that um, that gives you the right to close your eyes and then do nothing. It should be everyone's role, one could argue, that also doesn't give you the right to do nothing as an investor. To me, a good investor understands the various types of risk in the portfolio. And if there is systemic risk, and I would argue if you have anything more than a handful of securities, you're exposed to systemic risk, then maybe you ought to think about doing it. Now, that about mitigating it. Now, that doesn't mean that you take on everything in the world or that government doesn't have a role. I I also think it's sometimes used as a false dichotomy by those who would like to do nothing to say it's government's role. It may be government's role, but it may also be your role. And given the nature of the markets and how core to all functioning finances, it would seem to me that it's useful to decrease risk, have markets re-rate, we estimate that the beta activism done to date, and we should define that term, which I will admit it, beta activism done to date has already added 2 to 5% to global wealth. Beta activism, by the way, for your listeners, is activism that tries to deal with these systemic issues like income inequality or gender diversity or indigenous rights as opposed to the type of activism that goes after an individual company for a short-term pop. One of the things then that comes to my mind then in this in this type of environment that we face is now how do you then change it in a sense for these large institutional asset allocators? They've got a real challenge here because in particularly in the Australian marketplace, you've got a fiduciary responsibility to deliver returns, but then you've also got a business risk issue where you're ranked. And at the same time, I think all of them are trying to do the right thing and, and understand how they can be activists and do and improve outcomes. But they need to manage their business risk because if they do start to lose basis points because they've cho- chosen to do a particular decision in the short term that may pay off much longer in the, in the long term, they, they've got to manage that, that risk. How do you then deal with that potential problem where everyone wants to do the right thing in the long term, but short term they're fighting this, this very, you know, this battle continuously? There are two aspects to that question. 
the short term, long term, we have a chapter in the book about how people hyper discount future cash flows because of certain bioneurological developmental factors. But I think what you're really asking without mentioning it is what if people divest from or exclude certain securities from their portfolios? You'll notice I never mentioned that word. There are the investment integration project considers there are 10 tools of intentionality, 10 ways that you can affect things. And I actually think divestiture takes all the air out of the room for nine and a half of them. They, they view divestiture or exclusions as part of private sector standard setting, saying what's acceptable and allowable. But you'll notice that you could do that by saying that companies should report environmentally according to TCFD and SASB. That doesn't say divest. Indeed, in the United States recently, the big environmental win was by a small hedge fund called Engine Number One that um, just elected three climate aware and climate sensitive board members to Exxon's board. And the entire proxy battle was fought around climate. But if you were one of these rating agencies that only cared about divestiture, and you look at Engine One's stock portfolio prior to that event, or even now, you'd say, oh, they have a single stock and it's Exxon. What a horrible, awful portfolio. They don't care about the environment when all they cared about was the environment. And so I think measuring doing right or doing the good thing by what you own isn't necessarily the only way or even the right way to do it. Stewardship plays a huge role. Encouraging government action, polity plays a huge role. Additionality, creating products that appeal to people along various SDG lines plays a role. And so to me, I am neither pro nor con divestiture. I think it has a place, but I also think that place is more limited than most people do. It should be something to be considered as part of the toolkit not the only thing. It is, we should not replicate that hammer and nail problem from uh, MPT in responsible investing. We ought to understand when you use what tool, where and how. I'll complicate the conversation a little bit more. The central banks have become a real prominent piece of financial markets today. Uh, and some people say for for worse in many cases because the amount of liquidity that they've been throwing into the market and that liquidity has been cascading totally across the market. I think one of the things you need to to think about in that sort of circumstance where there's so much liquidity pouring through the market, a lot of these factors, these systemic factors that you're raising now become sort of second fiddle. Uh, what do you think about the role of the central banks in you know, impacting really investors' returns, investing portfolios? The developed world in particular is certainly awash on liquidity. Um, and that has um, certain effects some salutary, which the central banks intend, such as trying to goose the economy and get more people to work. Some negative, such as what's called financial repression, which is that uh, investors who are saving for the long t- term find few areas to gain a return at a low or moderate risk level. And so it actually encourages leverage structures. And I know you did a couple of podcasts with the pre-distribution initiative. If you are a pension fund seeking a 7 or 8% return, it's really hard to get in a world of wash and liquidity. 
On the other hand, I think that the central bank's influence on the capital markets demonstrates exactly what I said before, that systemic risk in the real world is non-diversifiable and impacts the capital markets as systematic risk. Central banks are a classic example of that. They are part of the financial system as well. And so there are a number of people who are working on these issues of how should central banks intervene? What's a fair tax policy internationally? That, fortunately or unfortunately, is beyond the ken of the book. But clearly, it is interesting because I never would have thought five years ago that tax policy would be regarded as a responsible investing initiative. And yet it is. There are major institutional investors globally who are encouraging fair taxation for a number of reasons. One, because they view it as a way to moderate income inequality around the world. Two, because they see the need for tax revenues, as you said, government has a purpose, to fund infrastructure for a just transition into a less carbon intense future. And so again, what you are seeing is investors stepping up for something that, you know, 10 years ago would would have been, that's not our job, that's government's job. What's tax policy? What's central bank policy? And they are looking at it in terms of, here's what you are doing to our sustainable capital markets. We have to change this. And they are using polity to do it. They are forming groups. They're lobbying national governments. They're trying to affect tax treaties. Those are all things that investors never did 10 years ago. It's interesting when you're talking about sort of the role of the government here. And I can see the the flip side uh, in terms of the role of the government in terms of sometimes papering over some of these problems. If you look to the COVID crisis and the significant impact that happened uh, on the financial markets and also the real economy, they they poured more money in, sort of papered over the problems. Uh, you had you know issues of um, climate-related uh, uh, problems such as earthquakes and so forth. Whenever they come, you see new, huge amounts of more money that comes in. You, you've got to start to wonder, you know, is there now this constant, I guess, thought for many investors that any large crisis will just now mean more money in this MMT-style world where we can just keep printing money that can help address problems, that that becomes too much. We rely too much on that way of dealing with the issue. There is clearly what used to be called moral hazard, right? Which is that people do foolish things because the government bails them out. Or in this case, natural events happen and the government bails us all out. Uh, Or people don't prepare for the natural events. So I guess it would be the stupid thing that is done. Yeah, it works until it doesn't. And the problem is... If you never deal with the underlying causes, then they keep repeating itself. And you eventually, the government reaction needs to be more and more extreme until it doesn't work at all. So, you know, you used to be, okay, you lowered interest rates. Then you buy assets. Then you buy riskier assets. Then at what point does do we realize it's just not sufficient anymore and the financial system has to deal with the underlying issues and that 
you can't just play a game of moral hazard musical chairs because you wind up getting stuck in the one that that doesn't exist when the music stops. You know, we've seen this over and over during the global financial crisis. Chuck Prince, who was the uh, CEO of Citicorp, said, you got to keep dancing while the music's playing. Well, no, Chuck, you don't. You, sometimes you have to prepare for when the music stops. Yeah, look, that was exactly where I was going in terms of this whole idea of moral hazard, because it is something that I feel that many investors believe that they will always have their back held by the Fed and that any problem that comes, it's the Fed that will help them. It was, it's, the, it's the government that will help them and that the market now has become too financialized uh, and it's really too entwined with the actual real economy. And so that, that's, the, that's the systemic problems that we face now where the financial markets are almost driving the real economy as well. Well, what you've seen, you know, everyone wonders why we haven't seen more inflation. And what you have seen is you've seen inflation, but it's inflation in financial assets and in in assets as opposed to in wage. So when you can sell a non-fungible token for artwork for $70 million and then the next day for 30, when meme stocks start trading for huge valuations you know, up 2,800% in three months, you sort of wonder what happens when either the liquidity stops or liquidity or real inflation kicks in and you just can't print enough money. And that's, to be honest, that's not something I want to experience or live through. But to get back, to bring this back to sort of how it would relate to the book, I think it is that you have to deal with the underlying systemic risk. You can't paper it over. I don't know. I mean, and climate change is one of those great examples. There's science. There's planetary limits. I don't care what the Fed prints. It's not going to deal with that. And we have a concept in the book called extended risk, extended intermediation. And what that basically says is you're investing for future cash flows, right? When you retire or whatever. So what's the discount rate if lack of social cohesion because of the way the markets act results in you're having to live in a armed gated community or even worse live outside the armed gated community looking in or if you need an oxygen tank on your back all day long or if there's you know nothing to eat because the climate has has heated and so the financial papering over of real world situations of the climate changing of half the population not having equal opportunities because of their gender, of despoilation of indigenous people's land, of unfair taxation, dealing, creating these social upheaval movements that threaten democracy and bring about autocracy. You know, how, how does one price that? What's the discount value for that 20 years out? And the answer is there isn't one. And if there is one, it varies by individual to the extent that you don't have a market clearing price for it. So what you can do, however, is not price it, but try to mitigate it. And that is what most institutional investors have chosen to do today. That's an interesting transition for the conversation. What do you think you'll be doing next? What is the next area of research that you'll be working on? Can I try to get this into the real world first? I mean, I'm very pleased... I was just told that this will be a book in a Master of Sustainable Finance class in Belgium. 
you know, I'm sitting here in New York, you're there in Sydney, it's gotten out into uh, Australia pretty well. What I'd like to do is have MPT evolve to include these systems level issues and have that start to be spread throughout academia so that we have more mitigation going on. I think the next big challenge, and I'm not sure that I'm up for it, but that I see in this is getting the metrics right to measure impact. It is one thing to qualitatively understand that everything has impact. And we have the metrics right on some things like you know, scope one, two, three carbon emissions, but social issues are harder to, to measure. Biodiversity is a harder to measure, not impossible, because it's also somewhat scientific and measurable. But I think that is the next big focus area for the field generally. Well, John, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much, Alex. I really appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.